This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast podcast. Everything Richard and myself have been up to while Tom has been roaming around Saudi Arabia. More on that on tomorrow's program when he's back. But first, let's have a look at some earnings. Aramco numbers in a not shocking anyone, fall in net profit on the back of lower output and lower oil prices. Dan Richards, though, from Emirates MBD, has been putting that in context for us and telling us where they expect the oil price to go. As indeed has Manpreet Gill, which, just to keep things interesting, has a slightly different opinion on the oil price. He's the chief investment officer for this region at Standard Chartered. They have just published their investment outlook. We've been looking at grey lists and whether or not we will be off the grey list by next year. That's with Shane McGinley, news editor of Arabian Gulf Business Insight. And we've been talking about the demand for warehouses with Anissa Mohammed Ali, who's the Senior Director of Business Planning and Excellence here, where we are down at Dubai Commerce City. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. First up though, Brandy, let's dive straight into that top business story today. Saudi Aramco, biggest company in the region, depending on the day of the week, sometimes the biggest company in the world. Profits down. Yeah, indeed. Look, it's a headline, but it's also not a headline. We know that Saudi Arabia is pumping less oil. They've obviously got uh, the OPEC numbers, but they've also got their own voluntary cuts that they doubled down on um, a little bit earlier this week, end of last week. Beginning of this week, they came out and both Saudi and Russia um, said we're committed to these cuts for the rest of this year. Saudi went one step further and said there's a very good possibility that we will extend or deepen them. Five points to Matt Stanley from Kepler, who called that the last time that he was in the studio about a week before. Unsurprisingly, giant oil company sees net profit fall on the back of less oil. Indeed so. And lower prices. But what does it all mean uh, for us here? Because while Saudi Arabia has been cutting very aggressively when it comes to oil output, the UAE has not been so aggressive. In fact, as you pointed out earlier, it's only a few months since the UAE actually got a slight increase, right, in its OPEC quota? Yeah, it did. Well, the, the base number. So what we can take the quota off, if you if that makes any sense. Let's put all this together and figure out what it means for the GCC economies, also the UAE economies. And let's not forget overnight, the oil price fell by over 4% on international markets. Brent crude hovering just above 80, 81 bucks a barrel right now. Dan Richards is one of the senior economists at Emirates MBD. And we asked him very simply, what does it mean for GCC and UAE economies? Hi, good morning, guys. Dan, good to have you with us. So we're trying to make sense of all of this, the falling oil price, falling profits at Saudi Aramco. Should we be concerned? Um, Well, you know, you look at where we were in terms of Saudi oil production and Brent crude prices. There's no real surprise that the Saudi Aramco uh, profits have fallen. So Saudi Arabian output in Q3 was down 17.2% year on year, while at the same time Brent futures prices were down 12.3%. So put those two together, you're going to see that dip in profits. But, you know, it is worth highlighting that, yes, okay, oil prices have come off pretty sharply yesterday, granted. But the outlook, we still expect oil prices to tick up next year. In terms of production falling, that is a voluntary decision by Saudi Arabia and the rest of the OPEC Plus members. And we saw in the last couple of days that 
Saudi Arabia has, has reconfirmed that they will be extending that additional 1 million barrels a day of cuts through the end of the year. But that is a voluntary decision and that can be rolled back as and when they wish to. Dan, when you say you expect to see oil tick up next year, what kind of numbers are you guys at the bank putting on that? So we expect an average of $90 a barrel next year, which is clearly higher than we are currently, and it would be a higher than the average of this year. Now, that's not to say there aren't some downside risks to that, especially on the back of what we've seen in terms of data the last past several days, which driven that bearish downturn. Uh, Germany in particular looks very weak for factory orders or factory data out of there yesterday. Chinese export orders again another week to point this week. And then we had the build in US inventories last week as well, reportedly 1.1 barrels a day. So in the near term, there's been some kind of bearish indicators. But generally, we would expect more market tightness next year as these production cuts uh, continue to take effect and, and, bring, and bring the market into a deficit. Dan, let's talk about China in a bit more detail because it was half full, half empty yesterday. The bad news, as you mentioned, the export data down by 6%, worse than expected. And of course, that's a proxy for the global economy because everyone buys Chinese stuff. And yet the IMF yesterday raising its economic forecast for China's GDP growth this year to 5.4%. It was 5%. Gita Gopinath from the IMF was in China for a, a big conference yesterday. And this is her talking about, we'll hear from her on growth in a couple of moments' time, but have a listen. First of all, this is her talking about some of the risks that China faces. Three risks. One, the property sector. Second, local government debt. And third, the small and medium-sized banks. Clear recognition of that. We're looking to see what exactly would be done in terms of concrete measures. That's one area. But of course, for China, there is the bigger concern also of where will medium-term growth come from. We have medium-term growth for China at around 3.5%. However, we think that, you know, that number can be raised if they undertake pro-market structural reforms. Dan, how are you reading the Chinese economy and what it means for the global economy and us? Yeah, that's interesting, right? Because it's kind of the opposite direction from what we saw the World Bank do the other way of the day, which seems quite more reasonable in terms of what we've seen in terms of the risks there. And especially, I think, with China, you never know when they're going to implement kind of large-scale uh, stimulus and, you know, as you mentioned, potentially reforms as well, which could could stimulate the economy more. For the time being, as far as we've seen, they've held off using those kind of bigger measures. There has been a drip feed of piecemeal, uh, piecemeal um, um, implementations, which have improved the narrative a little bit in the near term, but there hasn't been the kind of big, big, uh, big um, announcements you'd expect to make a material difference in next year's growth. So I wouldn't really share a, a more positive view on China next year, especially with, with those, um, those risks that have been highlighted. And of course, the weak global narrative as well. China relies on exports heavily. Those have been weak. So it's hard to see. It's not only those uh, domestic issues around the um, you know, the, the long-term structural demand question of an aging population and then the, the more near-term risk to the, um, the housing sector. But also it's, it's reliant on global outlook, which at present doesn't look particularly robust. 
Dan Richards, Senior Economist, Emirates MBD. Appreciate your time this morning. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. I'm taking a look at an investment outlook that is hot off the press. It's come out from Standard Chartered. They're looking at the investment road ahead, weighing up things like higher interest rates and geopolitical risk. And to help me to do that, I have Manpreet Gill. He's the Chief Investment Officer for Africa, the Middle East and Europe at Standard Chartered. Manpreet, it's lovely to see you. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, let's run through the different asset classes if we can, starting with the one that's actually, and I'm looking at it now, headlining your report, bonds, the big bond question. US bonds in particular, have yields peaked? Well, in our view, they, they either have or are very, very close to doing so. And I think you're right. The bonds debate has very much been one about have bond yields peaked or, you know, could this sort of go on a little bit further before they end up peaking? Um, we're of the view they have peaked. But actually, as an investor, that we think that's a less important question. The key one here really is that bond yields are at a level we think are very, very attractive for individual investors today. Uh, after a long, long time, almost 15 years, you're able to lock in yield levels we haven't seen since all the way back in 2008. So we think that's the real opportunity here. What does it forecast, though? What could it be harboring about the U.S. economy in particular? What else do we need to look at yields for? Well, there are a few things you can extract from it, right? It's telling us that uh, interest rates have gone up by a lot, perhaps to start with the obvious one. Uh, we know that from the Fed. But it's also telling us that real yields, in other words, where the yields are net of inflation, those are also not far away from the pre-2008 highs either. So the, the, the interest rates are really applying the brakes on the U.S. economy. So we do need to worry about what that means for the growth outlook. In our view, these do mean much slower growth ahead uh, for the U.S. economy. But cyclically, that means we'd rather be, you know, in, US, in the U.S. at least, tilting towards U.S government bonds rather than really doubling up on equities at this point. What happens when the US starts cutting interest rates and what's your outlook for that? Well, usually, uh, you know, interest rate cuts tend to start uh, because the economy starts weakening. And often the labor market historically been one signal uh, that the Fed's paid close attention to. Um, As investors, the most important thing is that bond yields tend to start falling because they start in anticipation pricing in much, much lower interest rates, uh, you know, in the quarters and years ahead. And that's why we think it's so, invest- so important for investors to take advantage of the opportunity today while yields are still high, uh, because normally they should actually move a lot lower from here. Equities do also bottom, uh, but usually much, much later through that, that process. And of course, if you're investing from the UAE into uh, US bonds, the currency isn't an issue. But what does your forecast for the US and the US dollar in particular mean for UAE investors who are dollar linked? Well, I think, you know, as you said, for the dollar bond, there's no currency risk involved. But I think the real question here is, um, you know, if U.S. interest rates fall, we think that means a weaker dollar. So as as, as UAE-based investors, that means international diversification. It's always important. But if we're going to face some cyclical weakness in the dollar, we think modestly, that's where international diversification becomes very, very important. And you can do that through bonds, particularly through non-dollar bonds, a small allocation. But that's where one's equity allocation can help. I mean, we've discussed many, many examples of that. Japanese equities are just one example in a well-diversified portfolio. Yeah, Japan features here quite strongly. Where else are you looking in terms of equity markets? Well, at the moment for us, it's really about Japan and to some degree the US. Those are our most preferred markets. I think they're overweight within that diversified portfolio. Japan's a particularly interesting one because we think it's a way to get cyclical exposure, but at a much cheaper price than the US. Other markets like Asia, it's much more ensuring diversification across the region, not just China, but a balanced allocation with China, India and, and South Korea. We've been discussing the IPO market here in the Middle East, um, particularly in the Gulf, with EY this morning. They've come out with their Q3 numbers. What's it going to take 
for the golf stocks to end up in this international report? Well, I think it's a couple of things, right? I think it's uh, one is the slow and steady rise in market capitalization. I think that's always a process we've seen. Uh, you know, it, it tends to take time, but, you know, growth is exponential. So that snowballing effect tends to come in uh, all of a sudden, not for a long time, and then all of a sudden. And the second factor we're watching is, I guess, how the correlations with global markets start to evolve. Because going back in history, many global allocators tend to look at regional markets as a highly correlated U.S. energy sector play. Uh, but that correlation slowly but steadily starting to break down. So those will be two indicators I'd keep a close watch on. Well, you've mentioned energy and that also features in your report here. We're sitting at about $81.60 mm-hmm. for a barrel of Brent this morning. What's your outlook at the bank? Well, our, our baseline outlook is, is, is a fairly benign one. We think oil prices are going to stay in sort of this $80 to $90 range, potentially move lower towards $75 uh, you know, if U.S. growth does indeed slow. Uh, but we've also been looking at it as a source of risk because when you think about, yes, we have a baseline view, but what could go wrong? Uh, you know, oil is obviously right you know, up there in, in the list of candidates. So we're looking at more as a hedge, something we'd hedge against. Uh, but you know, we don't expect to make money from that hedge. Fingers crossed. We hope that means we make money through our stock and bond allocations. Talk to me, though, about what you are seeing as the the headwinds, the potential risks at the moment. Well, I think oil is one, of course, because we, we unfortunately have this regional conflict and markets always have a narrow focus, right? They, they ultimately care if about that channel into financial markets. So if we see any form of disruption to energy price, uh, supplies, that's the scenario oil prices, even if temporarily, uh, do tend to spike. Uh, so that's obviously one scenario. We do worry about, um, you know, uh, the Japanese yen, uh, because when you think about institutional investors in particular, the Japanese yen has been a great source of cheap funding. Um, so obviously, as Japanese yields slowly and steadily climb, uh, you know, the yen can strengthen, we think, again, not at all, and then all of a sudden. So those are two risks we're keeping a close watch on. Uh, like I said, not, not sort of something we're worried about in a base case, maybe U.S. growth we're more worried about, but two things to keep an eye on. Okay, so what's gold looking like allocation-wise in your portfolio at the moment? So gold is what we call a, a bit of a neutral view, right? I think if you go back a couple of months, we'd highlighted that it looked really interesting from a technical perspective. It tends to be a great short-term hedge against things going wrong. So no surprise, we saw that sort of move, you know, from the 1800s up to where we are today. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, gold rallies tend to last if real bond yields fall. Because if you think about it, that's the opportunity cost of holding gold. It doesn't pay you a yield. So I think we may have in the short term run its course as long as not, none of our risks sort of really uh, come to the fore. Long term, if yields keep moving lower, that we think would be the real tailwind. OK, we've got just under a minute left with you. Where does cash fit into all of this? I mean, the flip side of high interest rates is that people are getting up to 6% mm-hmm. at the moment here in bank accounts. And, and look, cash, we still think a small allocation. Look, those kind of yields can, can look interesting. The biggest danger with that optical interest rate is it locks you in a great yield today, but what about reinvestment risk? What happens in a year's time when that yield, uh, you know, when that deposit matures? Uh, because at that point, if our you know, stylistic outlook is right, interest rates might be a whole lot lower. That's why we think it's not just about cash, but actually a little bit of cash, perhaps more high quality bonds. Manpreet Gill is the Chief Investment Officer for the Middle East, Africa and Europe at Standard Chartered. Charlotte, watching to me about their new investment outlook. Thank you very much for your time Thank this morning. Thank you very morning. much. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Arabian Gulf Business Insight. The news editor is Shane McGinley. He's with us down here at Commerce City. Morning, Shane. Morning, Richard. Good gonna to see a, you. Going to do a deep dive into some of the stories that you're covering at the moment. Going to start, though, with your headline story this morning, which is also our headline story this morning, which is VARA, the Virtual Assets Regulatory yep. Authority here in Dubai issuing a strict deadline to crypto firms. What do we know? Yeah, so what the central bank is, is looking to do is that they've put out a directive saying that they're going 
to put penalties on um, basically looking at unlicensed cryptocurrencies. So it's it's looking to crack down on these. So if if you're involved in that sort of industry, it, it means that you could be liable to penalties. But also it's looking at that if you're, if you're say, a bank or a financial institution and you're involved in un unlicensed cryptocurrency operators, then you can also be potentially pen penalties or sanctions. So it's quite, it's quite a serious move, but it's, it's quite a forward-thinking move, I think, by the UAE to, to crack down on an industry that is a bit grey, let's say. Well, the word grey leads us to the mm. next story. One of my favourites on AGBI over the past few days is a piece by the journalist Frank Kane, and the headline is this, Grey List and the UAE's Lingering Reputation. Frank writes the following, the UAE financial authorities will have earned a pat on the back if, as looks almost certain, the country, the UAE, is removed from the grey list drawn up by the Financial Action Task Force. What's the story? So basically the background to it is um, FATF, or FATF, as um, all the smarter kids are saying, is that the, it's a watchdog based in Paris and it looks at um, uh, compliance in, return, in relation to rules in terms of anti-money laundering um, and then financing of terrorism. So unfortunately the UA was put on this list, uh, the grey list as you said, in um, la the beginning of last year. So what we're hoping is that in February when the next review comes up, it's looking quite likely that the UA will be taken off the list, which is a reflection of over the last 18 months, a lot of the strategies and things that they put in place to sort of counter that and improve the compliance. Why do we care what FATF thinks? Frank describes them as potentially a worthy Western organization imposing its standards around the world. Well, AGBI a couple of months ago, we looked at you know if if, if you have a bank account and you're British, for example, it was a, it was a big issue because being on the grey list meant that the UA became um, a high-risk sector. So a lot of, um, well, not a lot, uh, so some British expats were having their bank accounts closed on the back of that. Their bank accounts in the UK? Yes, because they, they have a du their Dubai residence. So what the reason for that was that is because a lot of the compliance costs that banks have if you're, if you're overseas becomes a lot higher than if, if the country where you're resident in is on the grey list so moving off the grey list would mean that that isn't unlikely to continue happening and it's quite a big thing because you know the Nigel Farage issue so debanking in the UK was was a massive issue and it's the first time that we noticed that it was impacting Dubai and and the wider Gulf quite specifically. That flies out to get you mate yeah. <laughs> don't swallow it they don't taste good you say that the UAE could have just gone ah who cares about FATF but mm. they didn't they took it very seriously you say two guys in particular have led the crackdown we haven't got long left but Ahmed yeah. Al-Sayeg and Hamid Al-Zabi who are they and what have they done? Well they're, they're, they're involved in, in the central bank and they've done quite they've done a lot actually they've signed with 40, 45 countries around the world to, to do treaties there was also 202 um, queries from overseas to the to Dubai and the and the UAE wider look you know about criminal activity related to uh, money laundering and uh, the financing of terrorism. So the fact that they're now engaging with countries overseas is is likely to see them removed from the grey list, which is positive for doing business in the UAE. And you say that. It, people who have based themselves here in the UAE when they were at odds, shall we say, mm -hmm. with the international financial community are, are, are not getting away with it anymore. Frank says, rather than the stereotype of shady men in sunny places, perpetrators have increasingly found themselves in the darker confines of the UAE prison system. Tell us about the crackdown. 
Well, I just come back from Ireland. I was, I was at home for a week, and actually, people were talking about this because a couple of months ago, the head of Garda Shikana, which is the Irish police system, was was over in Dubai talking to Dubai police to, as you said, um, clamp down on Irish unsavouries operating from Dubai. And when I was actually at home, they were talking about how the Dubai <coughs> police were actually back in in Dublin. So these kind of moves are you know, part of the UAE's move to get off the grey list. And basically, if you're into money laundering and financing terrorism, it, it's just got a lot harder and hopefully should continue to. Fines totaling 200 million dirhams have been imposed, 1.3 billion dirhams worth of assets, assets seized. seized. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there, there was, I, I looked up as well, in terms of the actual cases that have come to the Dubai courts, there's about a 92% success rate. So it's shows that there is the crackdown is working and it is going ahead. The full story is available on AGBI, Arabian Gulf Business Intelligence. The headline, Frank Kane, grey list and the UAE's lingering reputation. Shane, just before we let you go, um, something that's just about to drop, as the kids would say, on <laughs> AGBI is your COP28 special report. Yes. What, yeah. what, what do you know? Well, COP28 is, is whatever I was talking about. So, and the Middle East is one of the areas that's going to be most impacted by you know, global warming because obviously we're very hot. So we've looked at the six GCC countries, what they're doing, what they need to do. And we spoke to you know, dozens of experts about what their recommendations are ahead of COP and what would be a good outcome for COP. So all the information is there to download on the website. And for now, at least, there's no paywall, so we can just read this stuff. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Shane, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for coming in and no. joining us down here at Dubai Commerce Sydney. The thoughts there of Shane McKinley. He is the news editor at AGBI. Now, this is the Business Breakfast. We're at our home for the week, which is Dubai Commerce City. We're in Building B2. We're in the lobby. If you want to come down and say hello, it's not. you don't need an Emirates ID to get in or anything. Just walk in. If you buy brandy and almond milk cappuccino, you will have a friend uh, for life. This is the Business Breakfast. Dubai I 103.8 FM. We're also live if you want to watch us on Dubai One TV. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. We're very happy here because we've got coffee down here in Dubai Commerce City, but other tenants might be a little bit more demanding. Very pleased to be joined by Anissa Muhammad Ali, who's a Senior Director for Business Planning and Excellence in Dubai Commerce City. Anissa, it's lovely to meet you. Good morning. Same here. Good morning. Right. Do other companies want more than just a good cappuccino in the morning? <laughs> what are they making their decisions on when it comes to picking a free zone? You know, definitely today's uh, competitive environment is uh, the investment landscape is changing. More and more people are demanding more and more things, when, uh, especially after coming out of the pandemic. So they're not looking for a traditional free zone operator, I would say, who is just issuing the licenses or giving you the space to lease. They are looking for more and more benefits from the free zone, who is hand-holding them from the beginning of the process to the end of the process. So it's just not about issuing of the licenses or giving you the office space to lease. They are looking for a, a free zone provider that can assist them with uh, the process throughout. Okay, so give me an example. What do you mean by, by hand-holding? So uh, you see the when the businesses start to operate or set up in a free zone, uh, there are services that they require in the beginning of the process. There are services that they require during the process. There are services that they require post-business setup. 
so we offer services which is which is covering all of those phases so for example let's say uh, if you are just opening up a business you will require some compliance requirements or some nocs we handhold you we take you through the process once you open up your business you will require business uh, banking so we help you with that once you set up your business you will require let's say content management or marketing services or technology platform services we offer you that as well so it's like the entire process end to end where we are hand holding the investors and making sure that they get through the entire process seamlessly what about the office space itself though i mean with companies luring their employees back into the office we're hearing that in the us they need to be offering a lot more in the way of physical perks what are people asking you for so people are looking for collaborative environment and that's why maybe you have seen i don't know we have spaces here right so people are looking more and more to collaborate a community sort of a feeling so we engage the community we ask them to be part of the events that we uh, that we do for our tenants so all of these sorts of things are requiring the people to come back to the office right i mean it's uh, it's always the physical touch that uh, makes people come back to the office and this is what we are seeing it's uh, the the trend of working from home or working from anywhere is flexible of course and is appreciated but people are coming back to get that human feel what about sustainability particularly for for multinational firms and to be fair firms here who've got esg goals that they need yeah. to hit This is definitely a trend that we have seen all the tenants that are coming to us or people who are looking for office spaces are asking what are you doing with regards to ESG so we have lead compliant office buildings we have solar panels on our warehouses so all of these things we see that it is not only benefiting the environment but it is also a plus point for the investors because they need to put it in their reports as well see so these are the things that we see the trends is changing and of course uh, it's benefiting both sides the environment and the businesses We've been speaking to the guys at CBRE about the demand for for grade A office space, and this is obviously um, up the top there. They're putting occupancy at the moment at around ninety two percent. What are you seeing in terms of being able to actually fit everybody in? See, there is like a mixed sort of demand. People are looking for uh, bigger office spaces, those that want to bring their employees back to the office, and there are people who are looking for more flexible working options. So it is like more for them, like flexible options. I I, I would want to share one of the one of the things that I have started seeing. People are looking for like lesser lease terms, so to say. So let's shorter. say shorter. Yeah, I mean, if you if you if you like, if it's not a one year lease agreement, let's say they want they are looking more and more towards more flexible options. what if in 6 months time i want half of my workforce to work from home do i have the flexibility to reduce the office space for these sorts of things we are more and more flexible we are ourselves if we cannot offer we are partnering with people so we have partnered with spaces who can actually provide these sorts of solutions to fit the business needs do you know what that truly surprises me because one of the advantages to having a long lease with an office is that you know you're not going to get a big rent increase you're you're yeah, locked yeah. in and your rents are stable but you're saying people yes. are asking for shorter people are asking for shorter and at the same time those who are looking for long term financial plan- plans and all they are definitely looking for uh, longer term leases as well and uh, when i say this we have clients we have clients who are looking for 5 to 8 years lease agreements that are giving them flexibility to uh, to be sure that the rental rate will not be increased exponentially Are you seeing people more likely to increase or decrease their space though? Uh I would say it depends on the nature of the business and it would also depend on if it is an MNC or an SME how sure are they about their business and the growth prospects. So for example let's say if a business is there in e-commerce sector 
e-commerce sector is booming like anything, right? There are, uh, if you, if like the numbers that are there, 57 billion increase by 2026. So these are the companies who are looking for flexible options. And at the same time, if their business grows, what options are, do they have? Where are you finding the space for your warehousing though? Because that's the other thing that we're getting told by an awful lot of, of people is the, the trickiness of, of finding enough space to keep things. So we have uh, we have seen this trend quite a lot from the companies who are looking for storage spaces and all. We are 100% occupied in our warehouses, so we are looking for more logistics plots at the same time. But we have options for the clients who are looking for uh, for for shelf spaces, for example. So we have partnership with Hellman. So to say, so 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 Hellman is offering uh, the solutions where you can lease the space for a shorter period of time and uh, do the storage for your business. So these are the sorts of uh, partnerships that we are fostering with different partners that provides uh, the solutions for what clients require. Okay, well let's look very quickly at who these clients are. When you see new companies coming in, what are you seeing more of? Companies that are already in the UAE or moving into the country? So it, it is a mix. It is a mix. It also depends on the marketing efforts of Dubai and particularly of the free zones who are attracting the businesses from different regions. Uh, we have seen people who are uh, looking for consolidating their businesses or expanding their businesses, which is within the market. But at the same time, people who are looking to this country, like UAE itself, as the place for investment, which is a very good and positive uh, positive uh, feedback from the investors that we receive. It is they are looking for this market. Definitely they 30 seconds. Where are you seeing those companies come from? What's the current trend? So there are different countries, of course. Uh, they are coming from European region most of the time. And uh, there are other uh, people who see the trend of uh, uh, like the, the sectors specifically, like e-commerce sector. I said UAE e-commerce market is booming. By 2026, it will reach $9.2 billion. So you see all those companies who see this potential in this market because the basket size of the customers who place orders online is also huge. Right. So, I mean, uh, definitely they see the, their products booming into this market and they will uh, explore it. Richard and I might have already done a bit of online shopping this morning in the first ad break. Anissa Mohammed Ali, Senior Director of Business Planning and Excellence for Dubai Commerce City. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Talking WeWork now and the fallout from its bankruptcy. Brandy Scott has wandered off and she's in the gardens of Commerce City Brandy. I am indeed. It was dark when we came in this morning, which you'll see on our social media, but it is turning into a glorious day here down in Dubai Commerce City. If we get interrupted, Oliver, it will be the birds tweeting um, and maybe some flies looking for Richard Dean, given that that's what he accidentally had for breakfast yesterday. Uh, but it's gorgeous temperature. It's a lovely environment. And it's an ironic place to be talking about the death of a co-working space, is it not? We work filing for bankruptcy, anticipated um, but still one of those things that is having some reverberations um, around the office space, particularly in the US. We're asking this morning whether or not other co-working spaces should be worried. This is Oliver Baxter, a familiar face and voice on The Business Breakfast, founder and owner of Workplace Maven. Thanks for coming down and joining us. Thank you for having me as always. Let's have a look. First off, at what happened to WeWork before we look at the bigger picture. So amongst the debt, the heavy losses, uh, the complaints about governance and, and management, the long leases, the softer occupancy, 
Which bit do you think really did for WeWork? Well, this is the the culmination of a decade-long disaster that's been happening with WeWork. So for those of you that aren't so familiar with the co-working company, let's put it in the context of uh, Airbnb because they are um, also a, a shared economy, which is kind of what they've been pretending to be, very similar to Uber, Airbnb, have the ability to access lots of people, but without really that many overheads. Whereas WeWork had lots of overheads. So again, to compare to Airbnb, imagine that you're renting your house out. So instead of taking a long rent for like a couple of years, you're just renting it for like some a few months to slightly riskier tenants, if you will. And then you've got to keep getting new tenants in all the time. And that's been one of the major problems with WeWork is that you just have to keep getting the, the new tenants in and it actually costs twice as much and you get half the space to be a tenant in a WeWork facility. Is it a company problem? Or is it a co-working problem? I would say it's a company problem. It was a a grow at all costs culture that really was the kind of the nail in the coffin at WeWork. They tried to grow too quickly, too broadly, in the same way that Uber. So we've been talking this morning about Uber finally becoming a profitable organization. They needed market saturation completely across the world, and that was their their plan. And WeWork had exactly the same plan, but they had the overheads of massive real estate expenditure. So it just wasn't, wasn't the tech company that they told us it was, Brandy. It was definitely a real estate company for anyone that's still deliberating out there. But what can other co-working ventures and even fast expanding companies take from this? One of the things with WeWork was it signed some very long leases Mm -hmm. at the peak of the market. Our real estate here at the moment for offices is not cheap because we know um, that the the prices are rising because we're on 90 odd percent occupancy in the city um, for grade A office space as a whole. Do co-working companies in particular need to have less lofty ambitions for the model to work? Um, I don't believe so. I think COVID has actually been better for for co-working. The problem was is that it was too little too late for WeWork. If you look at Q1 of 2023, they were actually at 73% occupancy across their facilities globally. They only needed 70% to actually uh, balance the books, but it was too late for them. And if you speak to some other co-working facilities that have had uh, a more uh, structured, steady plan of growth, they're actually doing really well off the back of uh, COVID and flex working, lots of organizations want to send their people to these uh, flex facilities um, if they can't all house them in their current corporate real estate. Are you suggesting then that there's been no hangover, if you like, from the pandemic in terms of sharing a load of open space with strangers? Um, I wouldn't say so, but of course there are geographical nuances to that. So America has struggled to get employees back to the office more so than, say, here in the Middle East, where we actually returned significantly quicker than other markets. Um, I think we've kind of got past that, let's put a plastic shield between me and the co-worker next to us. That's uh, mental security has actually kind of elevated now and we're much more comfortable being um, together in groups for longer periods of time. I'm seeing a a rise in co-working in the region. If you look at companies like the Executive Center who've relatively recent entry into the market, they're now expanding to Abu Dhabi as well as being in Dubai and hoping to go further out into the GCC as well. So there's plenty of operators out there that are experiencing the growth post-pandemic. Who's using them though? Is it sole freelancers? Is it new companies coming in that as CBRE has told us can't always find the space that they want in the buildings or the part of town that they want at the price that they want? Or is it bigger companies who have work from anywhere policies? Yeah, I would say that it's it's smaller companies, ones that really struggle to get long-term leases because when you're a startup, you are financially insecure and companies don't want to give you that long-term lease. So that's always been uh, the co-working model is we'll have like an incubator for these companies for a period 
period of time. And then as you grow in headcount, you actually outgrow the space um, and it reaches a point where, a tipping point where you've got so much of a headcount, you can't actually afford the co-working facility because it does cost significantly more than just renting a space, say here in commercial city. What's the tipping point for that? Oh, I would say it's probably uh, 50 around 50 headcount. Just off the top of my head as a workplace consultant here in the Middle East, I'd say it's roughly around 50 when you start to consider the nuances of your workforce and how it might not be applicable in a one-size-fits-all solution like a co-working And when you speak to the co-working spaces that are doing well here, is it new companies coming into the region that are, are landing in them or those that already exist? So going back to the example of the Executive Centre, I recently had a tour of their facility and they are actually housing lots of um, uh, medium-sized companies as well, predominantly coming in from from Russia and other regions um, that have kind of different pressures on them. So um, those facilities have kind of changed dramatically from what would be the standard uh, visual expression of of the Executive Centre and it's now kind of just that company in that space and they're operating as a facility manager in essence. But those co-working spaces are going to need to expand as well so presumably they're subject to the same pressures that companies are when they're looking for grade A listed space and finding that a lot of it is full. Yeah well what we're seeing at least what I'm seeing in the conversations I'm having with my clients is that there is a lot of wasted real estate we found even like pre to post pandemic we were consuming more space than we needed to now we have the ability to do flexible work we don't need as much space so actually we can carve off a section of our floor plan that could be a flex space either that the company itself owns and operates or that they uh, sublease it to somebody else. So where do you see as being the the des reses for these commercial spaces going forward? I've got about a minute left with (laughs) you. We're hearing about a big movement to Dubai South with more plans for the airport etc. Where is the office massive of Dubai migrating? I love One Central right? Because um, you also have, it's the 24-hour hotel there, which is kind of like a co-working facility there too. Um, I, I think that's quite a cool space. And then there's obviously loads of office space there um, around the area, as well as other co-working facilities. So you can, you, can, you can cherry pick. If you're just starting out, you can use something like a hotel lobby. Then you can migrate into a, a flex co-working facility. And then in the same space, you can lease some, uh, some, some corporate real estate for a longer period of time. Last question, 20 seconds. Is what we consider to be central changing or is it going to have to change? What, in terms of cities and uh, business districts? Yeah, I think there's a lot of migration out into the suburbs that we've seen because, you know, employees have done the same, especially if you look at a lot of the cities in New York, although uh, in America, like New York and San Francisco, they are migrating back to a degree, but it has been rural. Oliver Baxter, founder and owner of Workplace Maven, speaking to us this morning about the bankruptcy of WeWork and the bigger picture. Thank you for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.